socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 97 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your friendly neighborhood bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And if you've been listening to this podcast attentively for the past few months, you know that a recurrent topic rolling around in my mind is the sustainability of a global economic system dominated by the dollar, or rather, the unsustainability of it. I am a blast at parties, folks, believe you me. Now, The dollar-dominated global economy lets us fund first-world infrastructure, have the world's largest military, keep taxes low, and borrow money at low, low interest rates for things we don't need. Now, what does that all look like should it unwind? Well, to figure that out, I went all the way back to, you guessed it, 16th century Holland where the Dutch Guilder emerged as the world's first globally accepted reserve currency. And to explain it, I invited Stephen Quinn, professor of economics at Texas Christian University, who knows more than most of us about the monetary system. In addition to his academic work, he's also done some work with the Federal Reserve, so I had a chance to pick his brain about that. Sit back, listen to the smart guy, and I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I'm very excited to have you on here. Nobody finds the subject of the decline of the Dutch Gilder by accident. I actually discovered it as I was doing some research on a broader topic that I've been hitting on a lot in past episodes, which is the subject of debt and the subject of the US dollar as the world's reserve currency. And of course, in doing research of past reserve currencies, the Dutch Gilder kind of stands out as one that we can learn from a lot. So Steve, we'll start off with a real lighthearted and basic question, which is, what is a central bank? Because the, this whole story is going to revolve around that. And you know, it's a word that a lot of people throw around, but I don't think we fully understand. So is there a simple way to talk about what the job of a central bank is? Sure. Uh, and so as we were joking about before, the, this is actually a huge, a huge issue. I mean, you could spend a lot of time discussing oh, what a, a central bank is, which is a way of saying we don't really know. Okay. If, if you hang around with economists, it's pretty obvious when they make a list of things, it's because they don't know. We love yeah. to have the answer. Oh, I figured out the answer. Or it's a big deal if I have two answers, supply and demand. Okay. I had to go there because one wouldn't work. You know, if we got six answers, it's because we don't know. Uh, and that's a central bank, right? Well, you know, it issues currency, it handles government debt, it, it does monetary policy, it worries about full employment and inflation. It does, you know, 18 things. Okay, well, one of those makes it or not makes it or whatever, right? That's why I was joking about how different times, different places, a different subset of that list comes into play. And you can start drawing Venn diagrams and deciding if whatever is or is not a, a central bank. So I'll give you my definition, which, you know, ask me tomorrow, I might give you a different one. But um, we'll just, just break down the two words, central and, and bank. So the bank part. What is a bank? Another topic we could spend a lot of time on, but keeping it simple, supplies money and takes the proceeds from that and lends and plays games. Yeah. So is Venmo a bank? Mm, 
maybe kind of depends on what it's doing with your money. Definitely supplying a way of paying for things, right? Yeah. So a bank does both those things. A central bank is a bank that's money has become, if you will, central to the payments of lots of other things around it. So it's in the middle of the system. Uh, it's, in a sense, the money that the other suppliers of money use as money, which is a rephrasing of the, a banker's bank, but it's really a money supplier's money. Yeah. So you and I use our banks. What do our banks use to pay each other? Uh, in the U.S., they use the Federal Reserve. Okay. That's what makes it, that's what it's central to. It's central, in fact, to the other banks in our, in our situation, right? So that's, that's how I would offer up what a central bank is. And in the U.S., anyway, those bank accounts that banks have with the Fed, about 5,000 or so institutions have an account with the Fed. Not you, not I, right? Them. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten there yet, but, you know, yeah, okay. Time. <laughs> either even most banks aren't members of the Fed. I mean, you got to be kind of a kind of a player. Um, and I would say most banks there are many banks that aren't members of the Fed. So uh, if you're a small bank kind of thing, um, but the point is that those banks call their accounts with the Fed reserves, and so that's where the idea of a of a reserve that term reserves comes into the story. So you start saying uh, a reserve currency. Uh, what does that mean? Well, in the U.S., it means Fed money because banks keep their money, the reserves, our accounts at the Fed. Uh, if you're in Europe, your your bank's reserves are accounts at the European Central Bank. An international reserve currency is a central bank or some money that everybody around the world's using as their the reserves, their their parking place, if you will. What do I use to pay other people, other banks? What do I keep on my balance sheet as that that extra money? Uh, it's not even doesn't even have to be my my local central bank. Just for international purposes, what do I use? That's when the idea of a reserve currency comes in. But that's why it's called reserve currency. It's because of the, what does reserve means to a bank? Yeah, and. When, when I was trying to kind of tie a thread between the Bank of Amsterdam, which we're going to get to in a bit, which was the, the, the central bank of uh, the Netherlands back during the, the, the Dutch Golden Age and the Fed, the one common mission I saw between the two was they were both effectively responsible for controlling the money supply in a way or controlling the value of money. The, the similarity between the Fed and... Um, the uh, the Dutch story, the Bank of Amsterdam, is you know they were both providing a, a, a ledger money, an account money that everybody else was using. And then what does that what does that mean? What powers come with that? Well, all of a sudden you realize, well, if I'm if I'm supplying the money that everyone else is using, changing the quantity of that money matters, changing the price of that money matters. I can start affecting lots of different things, right? It's just, that's where you get into monetary policy, right? You're manipulating that position. Now, stress the account part because most people think about the Fed as, as currency because you know that's what you and I use, $20 bills, if we use it at all. My students don't even use cash. Yeah, my, my oldest is entirely like every, his central bank is his phone. <laughs> like that's where, that's where he's right. It all goes into Venmo and out of Venmo and that's, <laughs> that's how it works. Right. And, you know, it used to be the big thing. And now we're in a position now is that most of what the Fed, most of the Fed's money 
And the money mm-hmm. that matters when we talk about monetary policy is accounts. And, and, and that was what was going on in Amsterdam too. The, the biggest, wealthiest people, the elites, would have an account at the bank, Bank of Amsterdam in this case, and they'd, they'd use that account money to, to pay for things. It's basically, uh, they're both like a form of Venmo, uh, but it's a Venmo for, 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 for the elites and not for teenagers. One of the things we've we've talked about uh, in past episodes over the last couple of months has been you know, the rise of the U.S. dollar as as the world's reserve currency in this international market now for U.S. dollars. You know, how did the Dutch get there? You know, how did the Dutch get from whatever they were doing before the Dutch Golden Age to <laughs> a point when the guilder was just a, a universally accepted? Um, Form of currency. So I don't know what they were doing, wooden shoes, windmills, you know, pumping water out of bogs, building dikes. But after that, you know, what what was it that what was it that actually started the ascent of the Dutch Gilder as as this universally accepted currency? Right. Building up a network like this takes time. Because it's literally a network, right? The value of your money is a function of how many other people are using it. The more people who buy into it as the money, the more valuable it is, that network economy idea. I see this all the time with my students in Venmo right now. Just in the few years I've been talking about them with about Venmo, it's gone from being this fringe thing that sometimes some of the students pay for something with to all the students have a Venmo account now. It's just ubiquitous in that group of people, right? And it's taking time for that build because now they all want a Venmo account because their friends all have a Venmo account. So I all have to have a Venmo account. So that building is what's going to have to happen also for uh, a reserve currency also. You know, it's going to build slowly. And a big driver, of course, is usage, like you said, so the economy. So the Dutch, uh, Holland was a small uh, but open economy and very high uh, per capita income, uh, arguably the highest in Europe at the time, maybe the world. So it was the middle of a great deal of, of trade. And that led to being in the middle of a great deal of finance. So, you know, it takes a year or longer for stuff to go to the other side of the world and come back. In the meantime, all your money's tied up. Wouldn't it be nice if I could sell that to somebody else and get some cash now? Right. So you start to get that whole financial system going. And pretty soon people are, are, are using Amsterdam for finance, even for trade that doesn't involve Amsterdam. So I'm going to send stuff from Riga to, uh, to London. The finance for that might go through Amsterdam. The city creates this bank and says, you write out paper credit, which guarantees the quality of what you're going to get paid. It basically got created to protect foreigners from being taken advantage of with second-rate coins and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. this is 1609, back in the day, right? They had huge problems with coins. Each problems of getting paid for things. You didn't know what you were going to get. And it was all kind of sketchy. And so they said, hey, we're going to have this, this, this bank that's going to do this and it guarantees the quality. But what the Dutch stumbled into, and I think that's a fair characterization, what they stumbled into was going from a deposit withdrawal sort of arrangement, right? Where I put money in and later on, if I want to, I take it out. And what I put in better be what I take out, one-to-one, right? I put $10 in, I expect $10 out. And they move away from that into a system where if I got coins, especially Spanish dollar, silver, you know, pieces of eight silver coins, if I got some of this, I can park it in the bank and get it out when I want at a nominal fee. And in the meantime, I get to use that money. 
Now I got bank money plus a little piece of paper, uh, which is the, the repo option called a receipt. And then when I want the dollars back, I just buy them back from the bank by giving back the money and the receipt. And I take coins out and I put them on the boat in some days. This pulls in money from all over Europe because you can make it work while it's sitting there. Because it also means if I don't have silver, like I'm the Dutch East, East India Company or the English East India Company, and I want silver, what do I do? Well, I go to Amsterdam and I get an account at the bank. Uh, and then I buy the silver from all the other people who have brought it to park it at, at, at the uh, uh, Bank of Amsterdam. So the parking lot turns into a used car lot. And all of a sudden, the stuff's getting reallocated around. And it goes from the people who brought it in from Spain to the different group of people who go take it off to Asia. The answer to your question, why does it become such a big deal? It's enabling the silver to flow. It's enabling a whole market for reallocating silver. At the same time, it's providing a money that everyone's using for paper promises and credits. It sounds like the big, the big value here was that it was universally accepted. If I had a receipt from the Bank of Amsterdam, folks knew that this was legit and they could sail to Amsterdam and get their money out in silver if they needed to. Whereas if I came with some random coin from wherever, the contents and value would be questionable. Absolutely. Big surprise. You start researching into the Dutch Gilder as a layperson, and you go into a whole rabbit hole of, <laughs> of, of medieval Renaissance era uh, European economic policy. And the interesting thing that I, that I discovered, there was almost like a currency crisis. So prior to the Bank of Amsterdam really taking over the, the European currency market, there was an issue with coin debasement. There was an issue with uh, coins having sort of the metal shaved off them bit by bit. And so there was this big problem with the currency actually being worth what its stated value was. And it seems like, th did, that, did that sort of accelerate that crisis of faith that allowed the Gilder to come in and, and take its place? Absolutely. In fact, that, that crisis of faith is was what why the city created the bank to begin with, to protect people from the problems with coins. You have to worry about, well, what's actually in it, even if it's not counterfeit, right? And no two coins are ever actually precisely the same, especially back in this era. And so you had to sort of, well, trust. You had to trust the mint that created them. And you had to trust the people you were dealing with because they could pretty easily shave and what they called sweat. They'd like take coins, put it in a bag of sand and shake it. And just kind of rub off a little bit. And so all the coins were, were, were getting manipulated like this. It was the system, but it was far from perfect. The analogy I draw is to the, the US right now. You can, instead of your bank account, you can use paper currency. It's supplied, in fact, for free, right? Yeah. And your bank's obliged to give it to you. It's considerably less heavy considerably easier to carry dollars in my wallet than to have like a bag of gold coins on my back. But it's almost like I trust this thing to have value. Uh, in the case of the coin crisis, there was a period of time where people trusted that to have value because gold and silver had inherent demand or inherent value on the market. As people started debasing that currency and doing all sorts of weird manipulations, so you weren't getting the same value of gold and silver, that seems to have accelerated that move to, to the fiat currency, which effectively the Gilder was. 
and I, I saw a lot of parallels too. You know, even if you look at the the the, the wake of the two thousand eight financial crisis brought about Bitcoin, and you know, I'm not necessarily saying that that Bitcoin is going to become the next global reserve currency, um, but what I would say is that it seems like it, it does it does seem like there's a historical parallel in the sense that a a crisis of confidence in a particular monetary system gives way to a new and better way to do the same thing and ideally you have to carry less around in your pocket at the same time i think there's a reason bitcoin was called coin i mean that's i don't think that's an accident 40 percent, folks that's the number of people in america who don't identify with either major party bigger than either of them in terms of voters 60 percent is the number of americans who feel another major party is needed both are a signal something's wrong and both are a signal americans are looking for something more and that is why you listen to you don't have to yell now nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. We have this uh, crisis in confidence over coins, which was the predominant method of payment uh, back in the uh, in the let's call it 1400s, 1500s was right around when this occurred. Um, there was a desire to uh, have confidence in that what you were getting was worth its weight in gold, quite literally. And the Bank of Amsterdam is established to give that confidence. Uh, but also provides a more transportable method of money via a receipt at the Bank of Amsterdam as opposed to a bag of gold coins. And because of uh, the the large worldwide trade network of the Dutch, this gave them that network effect. This gave the Gilder that universal acceptance because there was that level of familiarity with it. Then things don't just keep going up and up and up and everything turns out great. There's a point where the gilder starts to starts to lose its luster. What were maybe some of the bigger trigger events that started the the decline? The a war between the Dutch and the English in 1780. That was the that was the interesting thing. I mean, again, you know, I'm going to just plead ignorant on history in this case, but 
I didn't realize they had fought four times. So this is the fourth war. This is the fourth one. They, 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 like, like all these European states, they, they jumped between being allies and enemies and frenemies and just up, down, left, or right. Because you, know, you yeah. go a few centuries in Europe and everyone's fought everybody and been allied and married to somebody else. So yeah, it's a very, it's a soap opera, crazy yeah. soap opera. Um, it's like Falcon Crest. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the Games of Thrones, you know, they, they mind all this stuff. I mean, most of the non-magical elements, I mean, they all these tensions and plots. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, it's sometime or another, all this stuff has happened. So the setup is, by this point, by the, you know, 1750s, 1770s, uh, London's become a big place also. They go head to head in a war, uh, and the English Navy just cleans the Dutch out. This is what's going to be the core problem because mm-hmm. the Dutch East India Company now can't pay its bills. And the problem is that the Bank of Amsterdam has lent a great deal of money to the Dutch East India Company. And now ah. the Dutch East India Company ain't paying it back. So now you've got an account at the Bank of Amsterdam and you've got maybe this receipt, right? So I've put some silver in, I've got an account, I've got a receipt. But I know the bank has been lending to the company quite a bit of money. And everyone knows the company's bust. They aren't going to be paying their bills anytime soon. And so you think to yourself, I'm not so confident anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Was this a very slow process? Just a few years, a couple of years, really. The further away you got from the center of Amsterdam, the longer it took you to understand what had happened. Yeah, but within the city center, you actually look at the bank's records, and within half a year, half a year, everybody on the inside had pulled their silver out. Just we're we're out of here. And to compensate for that, the bank just started lending more money to keep the keep the total amount of money around. They lent more and more money to the company and to the city, and it just started creating lots of money. You know, today we call it a you know, fractional reserve. Mm-hmm. What's what 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 do you have to back up this money? Oh, a lot of government debt or. Dutch East India Company debt or some some form of debt like that. And, and it turns out that the, the, the people didn't have a lot of confidence in that new structure. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> oh, again, most of that was bust. <laughs> yeah. It was like, um, uh, well, you know, the Federal Reserve today holds a lot of, uh, of, 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 of uh, uh, bonds backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, so-called GSC, yeah. government-sponsored enterprise bonds, right? Yeah. So, well, imagine if, you know, you've got all these Fannie and Freddie bonds and somebody took away all the houses, well, they're not, those mortgages yeah. aren't going to pay. <laughs> yeah. mean, what are you going to do, right? And so, yeah, and it just starts drifting down. Now, this is another important point. Because the money itself, not the mm-hmm. receipts, but the money itself was what today we call fiat. You couldn't yeah. make the bank give you anything for it. And that's like the Fed today. You can't make the Fed give you anything for your for your for your Fed money, uh, so it's not like that. It suddenly fails. It's not like everyone runs on it and it has to close up shop because it gave away all its money. Instead, it just loses value. People just start lowering the price, lowering the price, which shows up as either foreign exchange value going down, 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 down. All right, everyone just wants out. Or domestically, uh, domestic prices going up, 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 which we that's inflation. So those are the two dimensions. Um, so it's not as if a central bank, this kind of central bank, just fails. And all of a sudden, you can't get your money out and do anything. No, it's just that the money is worth less and less and less and less than it used to. When you talk about the the, the Bank of Amsterdam lending additional money, you know, I'm, again, just 
trying to tie it to a modern parallel. Could that be similar to, for example, you know, the Fed injecting a liquidity into the market? So, you know, for example, during the pandemic, you know, the Fed bought uh, a number of ETFs uh, and and other assets just to keep just to restore confidence in the market. Is is that a similar strategy, or is there something? Oh no, that's that's, that's exactly what's going on. No, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> they're literally we're going to buy something for uh, from you, and we're going to on our our ledger. It was paper then; it's electronic now. We're just going to make up make up some money. Here you go. Yeah, yep, yeah, and that's kind of the that that was the the thing that stuck out of me is because you know, again, getting back to the Bank of Amsterdam, certainly from the standpoint of transparency and accountability, probably would not. <laughs> It probably not stack up to today's standards, but at the same time, it seemed to me the Bank of Amsterdam was very intricately tied with the wealthy merchants of the city. So it was—I mean, let's call it maybe an oligarchy, for lack of a better phrase, right? Um, Federal Reserve technically is beholden to the U.S. government, which technically is beholden to the voters and taxpayers, but I—I—I I, I, I sense a bit of a blurring of the line between church and state in the sense that it almost seems as if now people's expectations at least are that the fed's job is to maintain asset prices and right. and and i don't know if i'm being too harsh on the fed here steve or not but i feel like there is a similarity between a bank that is beholden to the merchant class and a bank that is beholden to financial markets. All right. I'm going to unpack a bit of what you said, if, if I may. Okay, please. You're the smart uh, guy. So tell well, me. No, not that. But uh, Smarter we, than we, me. We're going to tease out a couple of those bits. Okay, sure. You started that off by saying uh, transparency and I think credibility or... Yes. Did, did I make a leap calling the yeah, Fed well, transparent well, and credible? Well, or, no, no, no. Well, you, see, you, you can you play to the two. Uh, you're absolutely right. The Fed today is much more transparent than the Bank of Amsterdam was. Whether that makes it more credible, let's say, that's not so obvious. You can make, they did make up extra money by lending, say, to the company, like like the Fed can do today. But most of its money, not all, but most of it, was created because somebody brought in high quality outside stuff and parked it. The Fed today is basically a warehouse of government debt, as you pointed out, the same government that runs it and owns it. So, Hmm. <laughs> In fact, you know, a lot of people argue that the Fed's really just part of the whole government's balance sheet today. The Bank of Amsterdam was it was owned by the city of Amsterdam. It was a government entity, but most of its balance sheet was outside stuff that people put into the bank because they trusted it. And you see, and that's what fell apart. So in a sense, when the Bank of Amsterdam lost its credibility, it turned into something much closer to the modern Fed than it had been. So our standards are just way lower, it sounds like. Well, uh, 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 it depends how you look at it. Our yeah. standards, the, the way we do it now, the, the end game Bank of Amsterdam, the, not in the current Fed, is all the eggs are in one basket. It's all down to the government. Okay. So the old the old Bank of Amsterdam, you didn't have to. All you had to do was trust the city government to not like go in and take stuff they obviously shouldn't be taking. Yeah. Now, 
the late Bank of Amsterdam and the modern Fed, you're basically, this money is entirely backed by the government debt of the government created it, right? So it's all just one giant, different versions of the same basic thing. And so it's all the eggs in one basket. Yeah, well, it's in, and the faith seems to be, seems to me to be more the utility of the US dollar than anything else. It seems to be the idea that the US dollar is generally accepted worldwide as a stable form of currency. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, one, one might argue the network effect too. You know, one of the things we talked about uh, in a prior episode was the petrodollar system and the fact that oil is bought and sold in USD. And so that creates a, a market and again, a network for, for USD, which, which affects its value. Um, I, 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 you, one of the, one of the things I've seen, and I'll go, I'll go, I've been going sort of from the Netherlands to now, I'm going to go from now to the Netherlands now, which is, you know, one of the things that's been on my mind a lot is, are, are these asset bubbles that are popping up? And, um, you know, we're, we're at a point now where in a lot of ways, and again, in my opinion, you know, the capital markets kind of aren't functioning as intended in a sense, because, you know, prior to, you know, the, the, if you look at the stock market, you know, it was originally, uh, it was originally created to give companies access to capital. Now it seems more that companies get access to capital with the promise that they're going to be sold on the stock market and there's just going to be tons and tons of money pumped into it. And, 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 and I, I feel like these, these asset bubbles have, uh, if, if you look at, uh, if you look at just fed policy, you know, these asset bubbles have kind of gone along with a lot of, uh, increased liquidity. You know, I mean, the, the, this, this bull market we're in now started right around QE2. Or, or I should say the quantitative easing era. And, and so I, I want to jump back to the Netherlands now, you know, because one, one of the things that's brought up a lot when asset bubbles occur today is tulip mania, is when the price of tulips just soared to, to ridiculous heights and then came crashing down. Was, was there evidence, like was, you know, with, with the changes in the financial system that, that the Bank of Amsterdam brought about, was there also evidence of, of asset bubbles like the ones we're seeing today, or is that just tulip mania, just kind of a coincidence? Yeah, tulip mania came really early in the bank's story. So before most of the things we've talked about had occurred, the very early bank uh, was just sort of had its training wheels on. It was just trying to figure out how it would, it would operate at all uh, when tulip mania hit and then uh, so, so, th- so that was that was uh, that was a bubble that that, uh, that it took care okay. of itself without without needing uh, the Bank of Amsterdam. It, it seems like if we look at the decline, and 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 again, I'll I'll frame it in the context of of a lot of modern day anxieties, which is you know right now one of the big anxieties is how is the U.S. going to repay its debt? Is the dollar going to hold its value? Uh, against the massive debt we're we're accruing and the 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 increase of dollars into the system, and I think if we look back to the Dutch, you know, it, it seems the one thing they had that we didn't, or the one advantage they had, was they had hard assets to back it up, and that really what ultimately triggered that the fall was the lack of of was number one their primary lender 
uh, or their their primary their primary lent, um, what am I looking at there? Their 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 primary uh, better. Thank you very much. Uh, disappearing, and uh, and then in a sense the loss of revenue, but also loss of that that network effect. Um, and it seems less likely that the Fed is going to lose the collateral that backs it up. I mean, to your point, it's going to be a huge challenge to make every home in the United States disappear. <laughs> that, right. That will be, we, we all, we'll have other problems. Yeah. Uh, I would, I would say I'm a lot less worried about, about the value of my dollar. Yeah, if my it, home it, just disappears. Um, but is there, uh, you know, when you look at the, the, the network of the United States dollar, um, are there any apparent threats that could potentially diminish that network effect? The modern central bank looks a lot more like the Bank of Amsterdam in the sense that it, it, it doesn't have its own revenue source to create credibility. It literally is now it's down to just will the government bail it out? Not can it bail itself out? So the Federal Reserve right now can get into a pretty negative position. In other words, it can, it can raise rates, lose money on its bonds. That's okay, because we'll just make some profit off the currency and we'll be okay. And that creates a lot of credibility. Uh, Bank of Amsterdam could not do that. A modern central bank that loses currency, loses the revenue from currency, loses the freedom to do that, right? It loses the freedom to say, yeah, we're going to lose some money this year, tightening things up. And that's okay, because we make money on, on this other part and we'll be fine. Um, I can't do that anymore. Now, when they get into trouble, they have to turn on the government and go, hey, you know, give us money, <laughs> make us whole. And yeah. the government might or might not do that. So I know that's a bit off, but I think it comes back to that world where, again, when we back in the, you know, the coin world, you know, then that's what coins could, could, could do for you. And if Bitcoin or Tether or whatever technologies around the corner truly undermines that aspect of central banking, that could be, I personally think, very, very, very destabilizing. Uh, and I think central banks are very wary of it right now. Yeah. Do you think they're wary? Do you think they are ahead of the curve, with the curve, or behind the curve? Well, don't know. So, okay. you, you know, take take China, right? They're, they're really in the lead on this, right? And they're, yeah. they're introducing their, 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 their digital currency and all this sort of thing. And you can create it. Just like with old coins, right? You can make them. The thing is, can you get people to use them? Well, China can sort of. They can just literally make people use them. Okay. And you'll get some of that, especially if you're a big country. But to really make it work, like the Spanish dollars, you got to get people who you can't make, force, compel, actually want to use this stuff. As always, if you like that episode, please share it, leave a review, and if you haven't subscribed yet, now's the time to hit subscribe or follow. Some devices call it follow, I guess, which is the cool thing. Hit subscribe or follow. I don't care what you do. Do both. Love to see you. Now, what did the Dutch Gilder and the dollar have in common? Not a ton, I found out, but there's one thing I pulled out of this. Monetary systems don't change hands unless there's something better to take its place, and that usually requires a crisis to make it happen. Now, for the Dutch, it was the loss of the Dutch East India Company, which opened up the door for the British pound to take over, and for the British, it was World War II. Now, for us, 
if I look forward and postulate what might happen, it seems the biggest enemy is us because the only time the U.S. credit rating was ever lowered was when Congress was unable to reach a deal on raising the debt ceiling back in 2011. Quite literally, the only thing that scares the markets is the idea the U.S. won't take on more debt. And with the level of political tribalism in Washington, it's really only a matter of time before a similar event happens again and the markets lose patience altogether. So to sum it up, partisanship and polarization are literally an existential threat. All roads lead to Rome, folks. As always, music courtesy of Quellertack, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.